Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house or take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who were pregnant and for those who were nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and ever will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. This is the word of the Lord. Puritan preacher John Owen once wrote, So great an advantage is given to sin and Satan by your temper and disposition that without extraordinary watchfulness, care, and diligence, they will prevail against your soul. As you know that we've been walking our way through the Gospel of Mark, and specifically, recently, we have been going through Mark chapter 13 the last few weeks. And the truth is, Mark chapter 13 is the hardest section of Scripture in the book of Mark. And some people would even say the entire New Testament. And this is not just me saying this. This is every commentator on the Bible that I have read so far says the same thing, that this is probably one of the hardest Scriptures to deal with. And the text that's before us right now is among the hardest in this section. Because there's so many different perspectives in so many different issues uh, that need to be resolved. And there's so many things to consider. And, and, and when it comes to interpreting this text, whether we're speaking historically or textually or theologically or even grammatically, the fact is this is a difficult text and there is no consensus among scholars on how to interpret this passage. I would like to say that there is. There are just certain things that we believe and certain doctrines that we hold to that we can say that the general consensus of scholars, Christian conservative scholars, is this. We know that Jesus is God. We can say that authoritatively. That's what it means. But we look at this text and we can see that there's a lot of divergent opinions about this. Now, I won't take the time this morning to review for you all of the issues related to this because three weeks ago we spent a lot of time actually laying the foundation for this entire chapter talking about those issues uh, and how we will approach this text and if you missed that particular sermon i would encourage you to go back to listen to it because there's a lot to think about with respect to chapter 13. in fact it was the longest sermon i've ever preached in my entire life and that's saying something and we covered a lot of ground 
right? And so we don't have the time to review it all here. The only thing I want to remind you of, though, as we dive into this text, is, is the context of Mark. We always must keep the scripture in context. If there's something we need to remind ourselves, that every scripture has a context. And as we have been discussing then, since chapter 11, Jesus, at the beginning of Passion Week, which is the very first day of Passion Week, he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, con- you know, con- confirming for the world around him that he is the Messiah, he is the King. And the very first thing that he does as the king is not go in and drive out the Roman armies from Jerusalem. Instead, he comes in and he pronounces judgment upon Israel and her leadership in the temple. Again, this was not anything anybody expected. It set the tone for everything that happened after that. All the controversies, all the conversations. And then after all of this, Jesus, as he leaves the temple for the last time, predicts the destruction of the temple itself. He says, in essence, that it's going to be completely destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. And the disciples then ask him, when will this happen? And how are we going to know that this is going to happen? And what will be the sign of this happening is really the, the, the question that they're asking. And so Jesus then answers their question in chapter 13 from verses 5 to 23. And as we talked about, Jesus answers their question in two main parts. He says, first of all, he tells the disciples, first of all, that there are things that happen, catastrophic things that will happen in the world that people will mistake for the sign of the end or the coming destruction of Jerusalem, right? But he says, these are not the warning signs. They're not. They're catastrophic for sure, and they've, but they've happened throughout history, right? And people mistake them for the end. Wars and famines and earthquakes and persecutions, those things have always been happening, and they still continue to happen. These are not the signs of the end. These are the things that happen in the world that distract people from the mission that Christ has given us all to pay attention to, right? We can be distracted by these signs if we're not careful, Secondly, Jesus gives his disciples what the true warning sign is. What what they are to be looking for, for the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And he tells them specifically what they're looking for. And this is the part of the text that we're actually in today. And again, this is a difficult text. And this is one that many people will get tripped up over. And it's one that, that distracts people from the mission of Christ. Because the point of this text as we have talked about, is not to give people clarity on exactly when and how the end times are going to work out. The point of this text is to teach his disciples and then us by extension how to follow Jesus when things get really hard. Because as we said, it's easy to follow Jesus when the sun is shining. It's easy to be his disciple when people aren't trying to kill you. It is easy to tell people about Jesus when there's no persecution, right? But what about when the world hates you? What about when, the, when, when following Jesus will cost you something? What about when, when the whole world is dark around you? You see, following Jesus in all circumstances is the context of this series, and it's the context of the entire Gospel of Mark, and it's the context of what's happening here. In fact, I want before we jump in the text, let me just show you something. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. I want you to see verses 14 and 15. Shouldn't be very far back because we're in Mark 13. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. 
And it reads, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The very first thing that Mark records that Jesus does in his ministry is to preach the gospel and call people to repent and believe. That's the first thing that he does. Now while you're in verse chapter 1, look at verses 16 and 17. The very next couple verses. It says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So the second thing that we see that Mark records Jesus doing is calling people to follow him on his mission. Now then turn with me to Mark chapter 8. You'll be familiar with a lot of these if you've been here. And Matt, if anytime you want to, you can turn that cooler off if you'd like. So. I see people saying silently, Amen. <laughs> Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34, Jesus is going to tell us what it means to follow him. And it reads, And calling the crowds to him and his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For, wherever we, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus said that following him will cost something. That following him would produce suffering. But those who truly follow him will follow him and will stay on mission for him, even when it seems that the world is against you. And if you let me remind you, in chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus helps us to understand what the goal is, what the mission is. Chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus says, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Brothers and sisters, that is the context of the gospel of Mark. And regardless of what your end times perspective is, regardless of your view of the millennium, regardless of how you understand the tribulation and how all those pieces work out, the context of this passage is the mission of Christ and following Jesus on that mission no matter what. Mark. It's Mark. It's following Jesus no matter what. It's about following Jesus even in the very worst possible circumstances. That is the text that which we are going to view chapter 13, including this section. So now with that reminder, turn with me again to verse 14 of chapter 13, Mark 13. And we're going to begin looking at verse 14 in a moment. But before we jump in here, what I want to do is I want to help you to wrap your head around the structure of this text. Because there's a lot in this text, and what happens is, when people read these verses here, there's a tendency to want to look at the details and really focus on the details and, and lose sight of the overall picture and the overall structure of what's actually happening here. And so what I'd like to do in your notes, I actually broke this out so that you can fill these in if you'd like to, right? But notice in verse 14, the very first part of verse 14, it says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, 
let the reader understand. Okay, this right here is the warning sign. Right? This is the warning sign that they are looking for. This is the thing that they asked for. This is what they need to look out for. This is the positive warning that Jerusalem would soon be destroyed. Now, next, look at the second half of that verse. It says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That part of this text is the command to flee. This is unambiguous. This is a clear directive, right? Jesus is saying is when you see these things happen, you need to run away from the city, right? So you have the warning and then you have the instructions of flee following that. And then verses 15 and 16 say, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak, right? This right here is the call to urgency, right? Because not only is there a command to flee, but what Jesus is saying is don't waste any time fleeing, right? Jesus is saying you need to get out and get out now. This is how urgent it is. And then verses 17 through 20 reads, And alas, for, the, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in, in those days, pray that it may not happen before winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and ever will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. This right here is the warning of horrors to come when Jerusalem will be destroyed because the destruction of this city is one of the most horrific events in all of human history. It's greater and more horrific than you, you can possibly imagine. Jesus is telling them ahead of time, it's going to be really, really, really bad. And then verses 21 through 22 he says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead people astray, if possible, the elect. This is important to understand is this is the second warning that Jesus is giving about false Christs and false prophets. This should cause you to sit up and pay attention because when Jesus says something once, it's important. When he repeats himself, it is very clear he's trying to draw your attention to something. Right? This is the second time he mentions this. And then verse 23, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. This right here is the point of this entire text. It's the point of the entire section, right? as we will see. We are to be on guard in all circumstances. Right? And I want you to notice, Jesus says, be on guard. This is the third time in the third time that he uses this expression in this one section, right? He uses the word, as we said, blepo, right? And he's saying that we need to be watchful. This is the key to understanding of what Jesus is getting at for his disciples in this entire section is he is calling them in all these circumstances to have their eyes open and to be aware of what's happening around them. Because guess what? If you don't, you can fall for the false teachers and you can then fall prey to being useless for the kingdom. Because what is the mission? The spreading of the gospel around the world in all circumstances. And so in, in verse 14, what we see is a very clear sign of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And I want, I want you to notice in verse 14 is that this is a very specific warning. right? It's very detailed. 
Jesus gave before this a list of things that are not signs. And I want you to notice those things are not specific. They're very general in, in terms. He just says wars and he says famines and earthquakes and national strife. He talks about kingdoms that are in conflict. These are generic, common events that happen. He doesn't give specifics for them. These are just things that people you know, see around them. They're catastrophic in nature for sure, but they're regular things that have happened from the beginning and then continue to happen to now. And this is important for us to understand because Jesus is saying that all those general things are not the signs of the end. They are just difficult things that happen and, and they are very general in nature, even though that people will tend because of their own context, want to mistake them for the end. And one of the things that we have to understand is false prophets and false teachers have always tended to speak in general terms and never really give specifics when it comes down to signs and predictions. Right? They always speak in generalities, right? They always talk in nonspecifics. This includes even the so-called prophets today, the, the famous ones that are on TV, even the famous ones who surround you know, certain political figures. They always speak in generalities. They'll say things like, well, you know, in this coming year, it's going to be a year of great upheaval. Really? Okay. And, 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 and God said to me that if I work really hard, I need to be ready because, because a difficult time is coming followed by a time of abundance. Okay. So you're telling me things are going to be hard and that there's going to be great upheaval and there's going to be conflict in the Middle East and, and, there's, going to, and there's going to be horrific things happening that people do to each other and that leaders are going to fail and, and other leaders are going to rise. Please tell me more. Right? Brothers and sisters, great upheavals have been happening from the beginning, right? Right? Thousands, for thousands of years, there have been political upheavals and civil upheavals. Brothers and sisters, nations have been rising and falling since there were nations to, to, to exist. Modern day false prophets almost always speak in vague general terms, right? When you listen to the televangelists that want to, want to, Offer, offer prophecy to you, what you'll notice is that they're very, very loose. It's, it's like astrologers, right? Like when you read somebody's astrology thing on Facebook, it always seems like, oh, that seems like me. Well, that sounds like me. That sounds like me. Because why? It's very general terms. By the way, let me be clear. There are no new modern day prophets. None. There are none. Right? I want to be very clear about that. And there's no big A Apostles like Paul and Peter. There are no new prophets. There are no new prophecies being given. There's no new revelations. God has completed his revelation in this, in the word of God. In fact, by the way, a few months ago, Fernando and I were outside. Um, we were talking and some guy I've never met before just rides up on his bicycle and says, hi, my name is, and I can't remember his name. I wish I did. He says, but I'm a prophet from God and I got a message for you. And I'm like, um, hang on a second. Um, it's nice to meet you, first of all, but you're not a prophet from God. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, because as far as I understand it, the Bible says um, long ago and it, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us by his son. I said, so friend, all the prophets and apostles have died a long time ago. 
You might be a believer, but you're not a prophet. To which he began to look at me and start cussing at me. <laughs> Fernando will validate this, right? He began to cuss at me and start calling me names, right? I was like, wow. I didn't know a prophet of God spoke with such a tongue. <laughs> and so he turned around and then he left. True story. There are no new prophets who claim to be prophets, right? And when they do claim to be prophets, they almost always speak in generalities and say things that can fit lots of different situations, talking about wars and conflicts and pestilence and blessings and abundant harvests and things like that. But Jesus was a true prophet, right? And, and, and he said those general things are not signs, but then he gives the disciples a very clear and specific sign of what to look for. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it, he ought not to be, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Right? Jesus' answer to the disciples is actually really quite specific. He said the temple is going to be destroyed and by extension the city of Jerusalem. And they asked him, when would this happen and what would the sign be? And, when, and he says, when you see when you see the, with a definite article, the abomination of desolation, not a abomination of desolation, the, very clear article, the abomination of desolation, a specific thing, standing where he ought not to be, then you will know for certain that it is time to go. You're not going to have to guess about, is it time? You're not going to have to wonder. You're not going to have to, to worry. The fact is you will understand you will see it and you will understand the destruction of Jerusalem is near. Jesus gave them a very clear sign, a sign that in their context, they would understand. Now, 2,000 years later, being Americans and not Jewish, being raised in Western society, not Eastern society, we read the Bible with our eyes and in our language and we say, wait a minute, <laughs> that sign is not so clear. We look at that and go, what does that mean? And the reason why I say that it's not clear is because as I have studied this out, there's at least eight, eight scholarly opinions. And when I say scholarly, well-researched, well-argued, right? There's at least eight different scholarly opinions about what the abomination of desolation meant for them in the first century. There's at least eight different perspectives, and then when you start talking about how this applies to the future, there's even more perspectives, right, when it comes to the return of Christ. Now, I'm not going to share with you all of the options. I don't want to bore you with that. By the way, I have a tendency to go along anyway on my own, so I, don't want, I won't take the time for that. What I want to do, though, is, is I don't want to speculate. I'm, I'm not going to speculate about what this means for the future. What I want to share with you to the best of my ability, what I believe Jesus is talking about with respect to the disciples and, and the first century believers, what he's referring their attention to. And I believe that what Jesus is referring to is actually clear in the text, if you'll just let the text speak for itself. So look again at verse 14. It says, but you, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, it says, let the reader understand. And I think that let the reader understand is the key to this verse. Right? Because what you need to realize is, is that Mark, when he says, let the reader understand, he's not thinking about you. Okay, He's talking to the people in the first century. 
Remember, the, he's writing for a first century audience who is facing persecution. Right? Most likely many Christians, Jewish Christians who are in Rome. He's thinking about them and talking to them. Right? He's saying this to them. Let the reader in that century understand. And what, what, what you need to realize is this expression then should be a clue for us. Right? This let the reader understand should be a clue for us that he's saying, let the reader think about this. Consider what, what's being said here. You see, the expression abomination and desolation is a symbol of something that they would have in their context understood. They know exactly what Jesus is referring to. Remember, he's talking about the destruction of the temple. That is the context. And when, when Mark uses the expression abomination of desolation, he's intentionally drawing their attention to the Old Testament, specifically to the book of Daniel. These are, these are common themes for Daniel. Because Daniel himself foretells the desecration of the temple. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, it says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Can you hear the language? Right? This is what Jesus is referring to. He's drawing their attention to this, this prophecy. He's using this expression to remind them of this text. And the reason why Jesus uses this, the reason why Mark records it this way, is, is this is a reference that he's drawing the audience to of a historical event that had happened within recent history that they're familiar with. Even, right, even at that time, they had believed that this particular prophecy had been fulfilled, this prophecy that Daniel had given. You see, in, in 168 BC, just a few hundred years before this, the great king Antiochus Epiphanes, Say that 10 times fast. Actually, Antiochus IV Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem and captured the city. Right? Jesus is saying, all right, you need to pay attention here. There's going to be a military conquest just like that that happened. And in Antiochus Epiphanes, when he invaded Jerusalem, he captured the city, and then he marched right into the temple and erected a statue of the Greek god Zeus. All right. I mean, if you're Jewish, you, you must you might be thinking at that point the world's about to end, right? And then, if that's not bad enough, he sacrificed a pig on the altar of incense. And if you understand Jewish culture, you understand what kind of desecration that was. The Jews saw this event as the fulfillment of Daniel, right? This provoked a revolt, by the way, in Judea, and the Jews fought to remove Antiochus and his sacrilege from the temple. And under the leadership of the Maccabees, the Jews drove out Antiochus and his army, and the Jews gained control of their land for about a hundred years until Pompey, an acclaimed Roman general, captured the holy city and brought it under Roman rule. You see, Judea was under Greek rule, and with the Greeks ruling at the time before Antiochus Epiphanes, they actually tolerated the Jewish culture and even protected their institutions. But, but Jewish people always had a habit of kicking against the goads and, 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 and rebelling and creating strife. Right? By the way, the Romans at this point in the story are doing the same thing. They're tolerating them and, they are, are the, and they're protecting their institutions. 
But when Antiochus Epiphanes became the ruler, all of that changed, and the revolts began to grow worse. Antiochus just invaded the city of Jerusalem and he attacked the symbol of Jewish culture, which is what? The temple, right? And great persecution broke out against the Jews. Josephus records that, and he says not only was the temple desecrated, but then they began to burn scrolls of the law everywhere they could find them. And if they caught you with the scriptures, they would kill you. There was great persecution. A catastrophic event happened during this point in history. And this is fresh in their minds. They know about this. They know about the Maccabean rebellion. They know about about this. And Jesus makes reference to this prophecy and this historical event as a symbol or a picture of what is to come, which is a military conquest of the city, the complete, utter destruction of the city and the temple. But this temple, right, this time the temple is not going to be desecrated. It is going to go all the way to the ground. They're going to desecrate it so bad it won't exist anymore. That's Jesus' prophecy. And And so that's what this abomination of desolation that Jesus, excuse me, So then, specifically, what is this abomination of desolation that he's referring to? Again, there's a lot of opinions about it. But I think Luke actually gives us the answer. You see, Luke, who was writing to a predominantly Gentile audience, an audience who likely wouldn't understand this reference here that's recorded in Mark, he actually spells it out for them in his parallel account of the same event. In fact, turn with me to Luke chapter 21. And for context reasons, I'm going to read a couple of extra verses up front just so you can see where, we're all, where we are in the flow of the story. All right, Luke 21, and we're going to begin in verse 16. And it says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Does that sound familiar? If you are here last week, then you understand that sounds very familiar. This is Luke's version of the same text that we covered last week, right? But this is written to a Gentile audience, so the wording is a little bit different. So Luke covers the same ground that Mark does. He's predicting the the destruction of the temple, Jesus is, right? And then the signs that people will mistake for the end. And then he's going to tell the audience, right, what the Jews in Judea are to be looking for, for the destruction of the temple. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near And then says, then those who were in Judea, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. If you follow it, and that's what I did. I printed out Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I went verse by verse, section by section, and it's exactly where it's supposed to be. Right? You see, one of the most important rules of scriptural interpretation is that you allow scripture to interpret scripture. And Luke, who is a contemporary of Paul, who probably met Peter and Matthew, right, and maybe even Mark, who wrote his gospel after Matthew and Mark had completed their gospels, and writing to a non-Jewish audience, does not write when you see the abomination of desolation, but instead he says by God's inspiration, because we believe all words in the Bible are inspired by God. He said by God's inspiration, 
Right? He interprets the text for the audience and says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then flee. This is the key. This is the event they're looking for. The abomination of desolation for that time is the Roman army coming against Jerusalem. Remember, they're living at a time of great political upheaval. A hundred a few hundred years before, the Jews had won their freedom from Antiochus Epiphanes and then lost it to Rome. Right? And then there's been a number of insurrections and rebellions since that time because the Jews are a rebellious people. Remember, Judas the Galilean during the tax rebellion right before Jesus was born. You remember that story? And how they revolted against Rome and then the Romans caught them and did what? Took them to the Sea of Galilee, hung millstones around their neck, and pushed them off in the middle of the ocean, in, in, or the middle of the lake. By the way, that's where Jesus gets that reference from, from when he uses it. Right? They were very rebellious, and there's been a number of insurrections. Right? But later, even in, even in Jesus' story, when, when they dragged Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate offers to set him free, he offers Jesus, and who else? Barabbas. And guess what Barabbas is known for? Insurrection. Right? So, th so this is already the political climate. They already understand that this is a powder keg anyway. Right? They would already see where Jesus is going with this. Not to mention, the Jews were expecting some kind of rebellion to take place. They were hoping for that. They were expecting that people would rise up and drive Rome out. In fact, they expected Jesus would lead that military conquest because he was the king and the Messiah. And so they're living in politically tumultuous times, and it seems like things are festering. And what Jesus is saying is when you see these upheavals grow, and you see these insurrections continue, Rome is going to get fed up with it, and they're going to come in force to put an end to it. And when you see that massive Roman army make its way towards Jerusalem, just like the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes, then you will know that the destruction of Jerusalem is at hand. God is not going to deliver the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He won't do it. The city will be destroyed, and the temple is not going to only be just desecrated, but it's going to be leveled all the way to the ground. That's what Jesus is referring to. That is the warning sign. That is how they will know that the end for the city is, is near. But I also want you to notice, not only does he tell them that, but then notice the urgency. We talked about this briefly, but I want, to, I want to dive a little bit more into this. He says, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. This is a picture of like, don't even look back, just run. Now the fact of the matter is, is the armies of Rome were not the Nazi blitzkrieg. They moved pretty slow, right? And you could see, and you could tell when a major army was on its way for quite some time before it actually got there. And Jesus' words here are probably hyperbole. He's probably overstating this in order to emphasize the urgency of what is about to come. Right? But in essence, what he's saying is, when the armies make their way towards Jerusalem, don't wait. Don't wait around. Don't adopt this, this wait-and-see attitude. Let's, make, let's see if they actually turn a different direction and not come towards the city. Right? Let's not hang around and try to make a few more bucks. You know, what he's saying is you need to flee now. You need to go to the mountains now. Don't hesitate. Get out as quickly as possible. It is that urgent. 
And, then, and, and, and here's the thing I want you to understand. Look, look at the change in Jesus' language about this warning. When Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars, he says, don't be alarmed. And when he even, he even says, when they arrest you and they persecute you, he says, don't even be anxious. But he says, when you see these armies of Rome coming, what does he say? He says, run. Right? The other context is, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. This is like, yeah, you better run. But here, Jesus is telling them to run because the city is going to be surrounded completely. And God will pour out his judgment upon Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And nobody in the city is going to escape. That's the horrific reality. Jesus didn't come as a conquering hero. He came as a king looking for fruit from Israel. And he found none. And he pronounced judgment on them just like he did the fig tree. The judgment of God is about to fall in the city. And notice the severity of this. This is, this is so important for us to kind of wrap our heads around. For alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing, you know, who are nursing infants in those days. Imagine how difficult the catastrophe would be for someone who's trying to take care of kids. I mean, all of you moms who have to just go to the grocery store and loading up kids in car seats know what kind of pain that is, right? Imagine having to flee for your life with, with little youngins. It says, pray that it may not happen in winter. Why? Because wintertime for them was especially dangerous. Because if you didn't have shelter, you would freeze to death. And being on the road and being on the run, that could be very hard to come by. And it says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is a very complex text. And if you want to spend hours inside of commentaries trying to pull this apart, you can do that. Because, because there is a clear picture of what happens in AD 70 here. And there's a lot of allusions to the future. And kind of pulling those apart is a little bit difficult. right? And, and, and the problem is that this is a text that people tend to want to linger over and pick apart. right? Rather, rather than just reading it and actually trying to get a handle on what, what it's saying because people want to build their end times perspectives around it. Not to mention, there's then all the arguments of what should we, how should we understand what Jesus is saying? Should we understand what he's saying symbolically? Should, what we, should we understand what he's saying literally? In, in which parts and pieces do we do symbolically and, and literally? Did God actually physically shorten the days, like in hours? Or is this symbolic of God's restraining the scope of this destruction because it's so horrific? Right? Does Jesus literally mean that there's never been tribulation like this and never will be again? Or is he saying, is he being, hyper, you know, being um, hyperbolic in his language, saying that this is one of the worst things that's ever happened in human history? Right? And I want you to know, like, when you actually read the arguments, there's compelling arguments on both sides. There's a lot to this. But the problem is, is when we spend too much time on the details and the debates, we miss the issue. The problem that we have is that we tend to look at this text and think about ourselves and our own context and what's happening in the world around us and what we know from our own experience rather than understanding there's a historical context that's connected to these verses here. There's a historical event that's connected that most people don't even know about. Seriously, most people don't even know 
really what happened in AD 70. And if you do know what happened in AD 70, most people don't really even fully appreciate how horrific the event itself was. So let me just share with you some of the historical details about the destruction of Jerusalem so you can kind of wrap your head around this. The Jewish rebellion really began in AD 66 that ignited the war with Rome. And this was by no means an inevitable war. Right? Rome was not out to just basically destroy the, the Jews. Judaism was legal. It was a legal religion in the Roman Empire. And even Nero's own empress, Nero, who, who persecuted the Christians, Nero himself, his empress, Pompeia, or Pompeia, she was very interested in Judaism. Right? Contrary to biblical novels and movies, far worse things could have happened to you in the ancient world than being conquered by Rome. The Romans hung their, 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 their law in sprawling empires and they curbed privacy, uh, uh, piracy by sea and robbery by land, thus providing security in the Mediterranean world. And the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys would not have been possible without the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. Right? And, and as for the horrors of the Roman taxation, the reality is, is people actually understood Many people today would, would rather pay Roman tribute as a, as a person in Jerusalem than pay the American income tax because of how much we pay. They don't realize how much we do pay. And for the most part, the Jews were persecuted and treated pretty well by their governors. For the most part, not always, but for the most part. But this changed late in the first century when Jesus Florus became the Romans, uh, Rome's last governor before the Jewish rebellion. Florus was a, a corrupt and brutal man, and he really kind of hoped that Jewish rebellion would somehow take place in order to cover his crimes that he was committing in Judea. And so he actually encouraged and fomented this discontent among the Jews who were already prone to rebel. The Jews were already prone to fight back, and so they were outraged by his treatment, and the Jews rose in revolts. And though they, even, even though that many Jewish people who were actually, who visited Rome and saw Rome, were coming back and saying, you don't want a war with these guys. You don't want a war with Rome, and it will end in disaster because of Rome's overpowering resources. Right? But the zealous Jews in Jerusalem... The zealots, a hyperbolic faction, according to Josephus, um, they, they carried the day actually early on, and they won many surprising victories in this early war with the Romans, making them feel like they can beat these guys. That's until Commander Vespasian landed in Galilee with three legions. By the way, this would have been the warning sign. These three legions of Roman army landing in Galilee changed the balance of power quickly. This would have been a visible sign that something's about to happen. And after that, it was a steady Roman advance towards Judea and the Jewish strongholds falling one after another along the way, again confirming that the handwriting was already on the wall. And then Vespasian, when he finally reached the walls of Jerusalem, he got news that Nero had died and so he went back to, um, to Rome to be crowned uh, the emperor, and he left his son Titus, who would become the future emperor, in control to
to complete the destruction of Jerusalem because he'd made up his mind that he was done with it. He'd already made up his mind that this place needed to be leveled to the ground. And so in April of AD 70, around the time of the Passover, the Roman general Titus had surrounded and besieged the city of Jerusalem. But since it coincided with the Passover, the Romans allowed pilgrims to enter the city. Why in the world would people still decide to go into the city of Jerusalem? I understand their connection to the Passover, but there's a siege going on, right? But they would allow these, these, these people to make their way into the city, but they refused to let anybody leave, then strategically depleting the, the food and water supplies more quickly in Jerusalem. And with, within the walls, the zealots struggled and fought with other Jewish factions, right? which means the, the fighting force began to become depleted. And then the Romans actually encircled the entire city with a wall and cut off all supplies that drove the Jews then to starvation. The starvation inside Jerusalem was so severe because the Judeans from the countryside took refuge in the city. The complete exact opposite of what Jesus had said to do, right? And it got really, really bad. Josephus, the historian, wrote in his uh, The Jewish War, he said that, 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 that dove dung, dove dung, the stuff that ends up on your windshield, went for premium prices as food, Right? And one poor woman even ate part of her own baby because the, the, the starvation was so bad. Best friends wrestled each other for shadows of food. Others with mouths open from hunger like mad dogs staggered around beating on doors like drunken men. And they put their teeth into just about everything trying to satiate their hunger, swallowing even things that the filthiest of animals wouldn't even touch. Finally, they ended up devouring their belts and their shoes, and they even gnawed the leather off, the, off their shields before the city fell. But then in August 70, uh, August 70 AD, the Romans finally broke through and breached the last of the Jewish defenses of the city and massacred the remaining population. Right? And Josephus describes the carnage. He says, as the legions charged in, neither persuasion nor threat could check their, their impetuosity. Right? This is how, the, how he records this. He's basically saying is that once they broke through, nobody could stop these guys. Right? Passion alone was in command. The soldiers crowded together around the entrance, and, so, and, and many soldiers were trampled by their friends. This is how fired up they were to get into the battle, is that they were stepping on each other to get in. Many fell among the still hot and smoldering ruins of the colonnades and died as miserably as the defeated. Right? Many of the Roman soldiers were trampled by their own friends because everybody's so passionate about getting inside and, and, and committing bloodshed. They trampled each other to get into the fight. And then it says, as they neared the sanctuary, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's commands and urged the men in front of them to throw in more firebrands. The partisans were no longer in a position to help. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. Round the altar, he says, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, 
while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered to the bottom. Now, as soon as the armies had no more people to slay or plunder because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, right? Titus Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. The Romans slaughtered everyone in the city and completely destroyed the temple. And what you need to realize is that Josephus records for us the the death toll. And the death toll was 1.1 million people killed in the city of Jerusalem. 1.1 million people. This is more than the entire population of Kern County. Kern County is like 900,000. Think about Kern County being completely slaughtered. Everybody in Kern County wiped off the face of the earth. In fact, let me put this in perspective. In September 11, 2001, the World Trade Center was destroyed and the Pentagon was badly damaged and 3,000 people died. A horrific tragedy, right? But 3,000 people died and the world changed for us forever. This was, this was catastrophic in our minds. December 6, 1944, on the beaches of Normandy, 4,400 Allied troops died on D-Day and people still talk about the, hor- the horrors of that battle how bad it was, how bloody it was. December 7th, 1941, 2,403 people died at Pearl Harbor in a day that still lives in infamy. September 17th, 1862, the Battle of Antietam during the American Civil War, 3,600 people died on both sides of that conflict, which was considered one of the bloodiest battles in American history, one that seemed to the people there of biblical proportions. The entire city of Jerusalem was razed to the ground and 1.1 million people were slaughtered. The entire city was wiped out, including men, women, and children, including the sick, including the elderly. This was a complete massacre of epic proportions, one that Rome celebrated. In fact, the, the Ark the Triumph for Titus still stands in Rome today. And you look at that Ark and you'll see a relief of Romans carrying off the menorah out of the the temple and all the temple implements. It is still recorded in stone as of today. This was a horrific event. We have not even any context, even in our modern times, to understand how horrible this was. Jesus might have been using hyper hyperbolic language, but he was absolutely serious about how, about how horrific the judgment of God was going to be on the city of Jerusalem. The horror was beyond their imaginations and even beyond our own. This was a world-changing, history-shaping event, and this was real tribulation. It's what real tribulation looks like. But the problem is, for us, is this is an event that we don't think about when we read this text. There's a tendency in us. We just don't think in these terms. When we read a text, we wonder what this means about the end times. Does this mean that we shouldn't have kids or should we have kids? I've heard people even ask that question, right? Does this mean we shouldn't lay down roots given the fact that the tribulation can happen at any time? We read this text focusing on ourselves rather than the, than the 1.1 million people that were massacred in, in the literal destruction of the city. We don't even think about them and what that means for this text and what Jesus is saying. In, 
in some regards, it's actually kind of a disrespectful way to approach the text, for we have this tendency to focus on ourselves. There's something about us where we want to continually read ourselves into the Bible. We want to read the Bible in light of our own lives and who we are. We want to read ourselves into the text thinking that every story and every text is somehow about us. But in the words of Matt Chandler, the Bible's not about you. It's not. It's about Christ. It's about God. Now, I'm not saying that, that it's not relevant for, for us. And I'm not saying that aren't, there aren't things for us to apply to our lives and that it doesn't speak directly into our own situation. And I'm not saying that there aren't illusions for future fulfillment in this text. But the problem is, is we will argue about what the abomination of desolation is in our context. And we're going to miss the main point of what Jesus is trying to get across here. The main point is what follows after this. Look what he says. In verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus warns against the false prophets and the false Christs again. He says that during this time of great upheaval, as Romans march toward the city of Jerusalem, there are going to be false messiahs and false prophets. They're going to use the current circumstances to promote their, their own agenda and their own teachings. And a lot of people are going to get sucked up in it. They're going to follow them. And, and many people will actually follow these people into battle you know, because these guys are going to be promising. They're the ones. They're the deliverers. They're going to, they're going to get freedom from Rome. right? And the result's going to be... <clears throat> is that people are going to be, be sent to their doom. And notice he says, <coughs> excuse me, they will use signs and wonders to fool the people. John MacArthur in his commentary calls these uh, signs and wonders satanic-inspired pseudo-miracles that are used to fool people. This is the type of trickery that goes all the way back for thousands of years. If you remember, pharaohs, magicians were able to do magic tricks that mimicked the miracles God did through Moses. I don't know if you remember that. The fact is, false teachers and false prophets have always used illusions and manipulation to fool people into believing false teachings. And Jesus said that many people will lead other people to astray. By the way, I actually had a conversation with someone who was in a cult at one point. And I asked, I said, what was, what, you know, what, what, you know, why did you stay? He says, because this person was really charismatic and they seemed to have the supernatural ability. I said, why did you leave? He says, because only one guy could do the magic trick. In essence, right? Signs and wonders will be so convincing, he says, that if possible, it will even lead the elect away. Even true believers, right? If it weren't for God's grace and his sustaining power to keep them saved, could fall prey to this. This is why... Right? Jesus says, be on guard. I've told you these things beforehand. This is the point of this entire section. Again, we come back to the fact that Jesus three times in this section says, or uses the word blepo, keep watch, be aware, be on guard is what he's saying. And the point is that when things get hard and things get crazy, and when the judgment of God starts to fall on the nations around you, as, it, as God's judgment will, you need to keep watch. 
Even now, even now, we need to keep watch. I don't know if you realize it, but like, <laughs> we're looking at a time today that qualifies as a time of great upheaval. I mean, like, if 2020 couldn't get any weirder, Right? And, and everybody knows that everything's pushing towards November, towards the election. We know that there's just going to be upheaval one way or the other. If he loses, there's going to be upheaval. If he wins, there's going to be upheaval. Right? And then you throw in the mix what happens just this week. Ruth Ginsburg dies. And the stakes just got higher. In a weird year, right? In an election year, where things were already like, I mean, people were treating each other worse than I've ever imagined people would treat each other. Civil discourse, for many respects, is out the window. Riots and, and, and vigilantism and looting is, is being tolerated by people for political gain. Right? Even now, in our context, we need to be watchful. Because it's easy to get distracted by everything that's happening around us right now. Right now, there's a lot of spiritual activity that's happening in our country as well. I don't know if you realize it. Because there are more and more people, more and more Christians have woken up to the fact that they need to be out in the streets telling people about Jesus. There are more and more Christians who have realized that there's only one hope, and that is Jesus Christ, and they're going out into the world, and they're proclaiming it. And you're beginning to see revival begin to break out in pockets in different communities. There are people that are going to these places and people are getting saved and they're baptizing people even in these cities where there's, where there's upheaval. But along with these people, these true revivals is also false teachers that are beginning to pop up. False teachers are beginning to pop up. I've listened to the social media reports. I'm listening to the sermons that are being preached. I'm listening to the things that are being you know, spread on video. There's a lot of good teaching out there for sure. and People are getting saved, but there's a lot of people using this to lead people astray. If you listen carefully and you actually understand the scriptures, you'll know, you'll recognize. Because there are people who understand that this is a great opportunity to promote their point of view. It's easy to take the Bible, take some scriptures and twist it into the circumstances we're in right now to get people to follow you. And the worst part is, is we as Americans especially are prone to emotionalism. We're prone to be moved by our emotions and false teachers know how to leverage that. They always have known, but now, especially with everything that's happening, we're really emotional people right now. You don't believe me? Then go to social media and watch how people react. I don't know if you've seen some of the people react to the, to the news of the death of Ruth Ginsburg. I mean, people have lost their minds. Like, like they actually literally think that the world's ending, right? And, and what I'm saying is we're prone to emotionalism and and false teachers know how to leverage that through trickery. They'll preach some compelling, heartfelt message that pulls on your emotional strings, and then suddenly this background music's playing softly, and, and they lean in and they look at you with a tear in their eye, and suddenly you're, you're caught up here. And they'll talk about the love of God, and they'll talk about you know right being convicted of our righteousness and not sin, and they'll talk about, you know, um, being healthy and wealthy and happy and how God wants us to be happy. And they're leading thousands of people astray. And make no mistake, there are some who can still or pretend to do signs and wonders. This has been happening for 
for the last 50 years or better, but it's still very prominent and growing because people are very prone to believe it. There's street preachers who claim, who claim they can heal people and straighten out people's legs. There's healing crusades where people you know, will go and flock and, they, and then the preacher will touch people you know, and they'll fall down on the ground claiming that they're being healed, but then they don't show you all the people that are in the back in wheelchairs who are dying of cancer holding on to, to people that they love. They'll do these healing crusades for money, but they won't go to the children's hospital and go touch them kids and heal them. It's all manipulation. And it's very compelling. And what's going to happen is a nation, as we continue to walk down this road and as things do get darker, whether Christ is going to return tomorrow or 100 years from now, right? there are things that are still going to be difficult. As the road gets darker, brothers and sisters, there are going to be people who rise to the forefront who are going to be leading people astray. What is the mission, brothers and sisters? What is the mission? The proclamation of the gospel around the world. In the darkest of circumstances, we need to still be preaching the gospel and we need to have our eyes open to these false teachers and not be fooled by them. And then also be able to teach the truth so others are not fooled by them. But how do we do this? And this ultimately, I think, is the big application question that we take from this. How do we discern true Teachers from false teachers, especially when they can be so compelling. I mean, Jesus says that they're going to be so compelling that they could fool almost even true believers. Think about the power that they're going to wield or how they can wield. How do you tell the difference? The answer doesn't change, by the way. It's coming back to the fundamentals of our, our, of our discipleship. It comes back to, number one, prayer. We need to be a people on our knees before the Lord in prayer continually. Lord, open my eyes to the truth of the word. Open my heart to your word. Open my eyes so I understand what it is that you're teaching. Number two, it's reading the word. Brothers and sisters, if you're not in the word, you are pray. You understand that? Like I can stand up here every Sunday and I can, I can convict you of your sins. I can stand up here and you know make myself cry. Sometimes you guys will cry with me, right? <clears throat> I can stand up here and tell you, you know, I love you, right? Right? I can do all the things that I can do to the best of my ability to shepherd your soul. But if you're not reading in the word, if you're not in the word, then you are making yourself open as prey for the enemy. You must be in the word yourself. I can't do that for you. And not just read the word, you need to be studying the word. You need to be in the word, looking at the text, meditating on it, thinking about it, writing notes, asking questions. That right there is one of the most encouraging things about Wilson and a few other people I'm, I'm, I'm working with is they're, as they read the word, they're asking lots of questions and I see there's a hunger there. You should be in your own life the same way. You should be coming to the text asking questions. Right? And then fourth, we've got to be staying connected to the body. We need each other. We need encouragement. We need fellowship. We need exhortation from one another. By the way, this is why we need to be meeting together. And I'm sorry, right? But the fact of the matter is it's high time that the church gets back together. This is what the enemy's device is, to divide the church from itself, make us feel isolated, make us feel alone, separate us from one another. And I, and I love technology. Thank you, Lord, for the technology. But it's not a substitute. It is not a substitute for the gathering of the body of believers. It's not. You can't hug 
Well, I guess you could hug your, your laptop, but it's not going to hug you back, okay? It's just not going to do it, right? And it would just be really weird if I hugged the camera, then you wouldn't see anything, just my shirt. The fact of the matter is, is we need to be staying connected to the body of believers. We need each other. We need to exhort one another. That's what, what the Bible says. Fourth, I would strongly suggest that you know your confession. And what I mean by that is, why do you believe the things that you believe? What is the foundational theology you're holding on to that you're walking in confidently? How do you know who God is and how big he is? How do you know that the word of God is inerrant and inspired? How do you know that Jesus is God in the flesh? How do you know what salvation is? Those are things that you need to understand, and our confessions help with that. Our uh, uh, the Southern Baptist Faith and Message is a great tool for that. I really especially like the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith because it really gets even deeper into the, into the details. But you need to understand what it is that you're believing, what you're holding on to. And then I think six, and really, I can't say it's most important, but it's super right up there, is you got to be preaching the gospel to yourself. The way that you can spot a false gospel is to know exactly what the gospel really is. And when you understand the gospel, and in the gospel is a part of your heart, and you reminding yourself continually what the gospel is, then you can spot a false gospel. It's easy to see. Wait a minute, what he's saying is not true. In fact, let me just remind you what the gospel is. And this is, and I want you to know, as your pastor, this is the stuff I tell myself. When I bump my head and I make mistakes, and believe me, I do. Right? I need to remind myself that it is not my performance that makes God love me. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that's my hope, not my ability to make to not sin anymore. Because if, if it's up to me, then I just might as well pack up and go home because I will never be able to do it. The gospel is simply this, that God is holy, righteous, and just and beyond our imagination. And he created everything, including us. And he created us to have a relationship with him. And he created his word so that we could know him. But in the process, our sin has broken that relationship with him. Our sin separates us from him. If we don't understand what sin is, we will never understand the gospel, by the way. Our sin separates us from God. The worst part is, is that sin then results in our judgment and condemnation that we were justifiably under the wrath of God because of our sin. That God, because of our sin, owes us nothing but his vengeance and his wrath. And to make it even worse than that, is you can't fix it on your own. You cannot, in your own ability, make God love you. You cannot overcome the stain of your own sin by your own efforts. You will never love enough. You will never work hard enough. You will never be able to be compassionate enough or, or smart enough to ever overcome the stain of sin, which means then you are hopelessly at the mercy of God. There's nothing you can do. That's the bad news. But the good news is, for some reason, that God in his overwhelming grace decided by the counsel of his own will to save us. And he did that by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world to become fully man. And he lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, died on the cross that you couldn't, to pay a penalty you couldn't pay. And on the cross, the greatest and most scandalous exchange happened. Your sins were cast upon Christ like they belonged to him, and his righteousness through faith is given to you like it belongs to you. That Christ died in your place, and then three days later rose, proving that he is God in the flesh, and that what he did worked. 
and that your hope is secure. And everyone who believes in him, the moment they believe, have eternal life, and that life begins today and lasts forever. And all of that is ours, not because of what we do, not because of how smart we are, simply but faith in that gospel and repentance turning towards God. That's the gospel. And brothers and sisters, I need to hear that every day. You need to be telling yourself that every day. When you fall down and start to think that God must hate me, you need to remember, wait a minute. God didn't love me in the first place because of me, right? He loved me because of his grace, right? Which means he still loves me in spite of the fact that I'm an idiot, right? And it's okay. I think it's really healthy at some point for you to be able to say, I'm an idiot, right? I think that we as Americans have too high of a view of ourselves. I'm a good person. No, you're not, right? You do good things, and by God's grace, through, through his image in you, you can do good things. But ultimately, we are broken wretches without God's grace. We are nothing without him. Right? That's the message the world needs to hear. And that's the message you need to go out into the world and compare to what everybody else is teaching. And that is what Jesus is driving at here. He is saying bad things, horrific things are going to happen. But what are you going to do in the process? Are you going to still follow me then? Or are you just going to follow me when the sun is shining? I want to take you back again to chapter 8. He says, if you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. And that's what this message is about right here. Yes, there's, is there conversations about end times? Absolutely. There's a lot to talk about with respect to that. But for relevance for us, in the context that we're living in, and to be able to go out into the world, what we need to remember is the call to follow Christ is going to cost us something, but he's worth every bit of it because of what he's done for us. And that's the call that we are called to. Not to sit like bumps on the log, you know, just sitting in pews on Sunday. He's, at, he's calling us to get out into the world and sharing the hope of Christ with our neighbors, our friends, and even that dude that almost made you stick your finger in the air when he cut you off. Okay? Even our enemies. By the way, just one last little note, as I was thinking about this message and I was thinking about like loving our enemies, then I saw something about our illustrious governor and my heart began to fill with rage and I said, and asked myself, when's the last time you prayed for Gavin Newsom? So maybe you can join me this week in praying for him too. Right, let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.